Today's episode is brought to you for free thanks to Acorn TV. Acorn TV is our favorite British streaming service. It's commercial free and it has your new favorite show, like the one we're recommending at the break. I mean, 1920s Lady Detective. Need I say more? From all of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code LEGENDS to get your first 30 days for free. As a quick disclaimer, there's stronger than usual violence this week. They are the Viking stories. And a brief mention of sexual assault in the Creature of the Week. Check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Norse Legends, where we'll see that if you're sent to kill someone and you end up becoming best friends, you might be a Viking legend. We'll see how badly Thor has messed up giant land and see why you shouldn't decline a taste of that hawk burrito. The creature this time is a vicious house cat who's trying to make sure the world looks like the movie Cats. No thank you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 222A, The Land of the Ice and Snow. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is set in Northern Europe in the Viking Age, so like the 8th century to the 11th century AD. Not much in the way of history to know for this one, but we'll start not in Scandinavia, but in Russia, with a king who's about to have some unexpected guests. There was once a king in Russia named Hertrig, who had two daughters, both named Hild. Don't know why he chose to name both girls the same thing, but they very wisely started going by nicknames. Brynhild, the elder daughter, was in a nut grove with her maidens. They had just finished up, I guess gathering nuts, when they heard a roar from the forest. Brynhild, a princess that had trained as a knight, but not that Brynhild, told her maidens to get behind her. The women obeyed, and soon Brynhild alone was facing the roar from the forest. The beast lumbered out. It was a Hyasi. The Hyasi were the stuff of legends. They had been around since the world was young, created by the Aesir or the Vanir for their great war, now left to roam on Midgard. There were few left, but they were as deadly as they were during the great war, and also kind of ridiculous. It was a massive, monstrous dog whose ears were so large that they touched the ground. But it'd be really hard not to be scared and also confused by the ears. Like, why were its ears so big? No other dog has to deal with that. It's probably tripping it up constantly. Okay, there's a lot to get to in this episode, so I will try and get past this dog's ears. Brynhild certainly didn't have a difficult time. She drew her sword. She was ready for a fight but not ready for Thiasi to lunge at her and grab her in its mouth, taking her captive and loping off into the forest. My king, 
Hild was taken this morning by a giant mythological dog, the advisor told King Hertrig. Wait, was it Hild or Hild? The king asked. The, the first one? Oh, the one who's into embroidery? The king asked. The advisor shook his head. No, the night one. Why did the king say it in reverse birth order? And also, why did it matter? His daughter was taken. The king nodded. Yeah, this was bad. All right. Better call Hild to the castle for her own protection. Less than an hour later, the advisor returned to the king. Hey, uh, now it truly doesn't matter which Hild I said was kidnapped because they were both kidnapped. On her way to the castle, Beckhild, the younger Hild who was into embroidery, was scooped up by a giant vulture in the middle of the city. He was kind of surprised the king missed it. The king sat back. All right, both daughters kidnapped by monsters. Time to announce the deal. The deal? Yeah, you know, the fairy tale deal, where a guy rescues my daughter and gets a bunch of money and gets to marry her, the king said. But this isn't a fairy tale, it's a Norse legendary saga? The advisor asked. The king said, okay, he knew the difference between the two, but he wanted to make sure the advisor knew, so... The advisor rolled his eyes, saying that a legendary saga was one that had fantastical elements tied in some way to history, but the saga portion generally meant that it was the story of one person, or family. Oh, wait, wait, which saga is this? The saga of, uh, Egil and Asmund, the advisor replied. Who are they? Sup, Asmund Berserk Slayer said to the king, ten months later. In all that time, the offer to rescue the Hilds had gone unanswered. Despite the rescuer getting whoever's hand in marriage that he rescued, and a third of the kingdom to boot. In fact, he could bring them back dead and still get a Jarldom and choose any woman he wanted to be his wife. A lot of assumptions in that sentence, but let's just keep moving. Asmund wasn't even there as part of the fairy tale deal. The 16-year-old had just been out raiding kingdoms, but wouldn't make it back home before winter, so he needed a place to stay until spring. He offered to pay his own way. But the king, choosing to stay on the good side of the literal raiders, said he could have a house for free. Asmund didn't stay in the cottage, though. He stayed in the king's longhouse, drinking each night. That was where he learned of Eagle One-Handed. Oh, that's the other guy from the title, the king blurted out. But the 18 wounded guys who had just returned really weren't feeling his meta-commentary. So he quieted down and listened. Ragenwald, the man who was in charge of the king's defenses, struggled to bow before his king, saying that a man named Eagle had come to his land and had been plundering the kingdom. When Ragenwald learned that a man was causing such havoc, but only had one ship with 30 guys aboard, Roggenwald decided to stop this guy before he became a real problem. So he took five ships, over 150 warriors. Oh, nice, the king said. Was he showing up with all these wounded guys to talk about how great it went? Roggenwald said, no, these 18 guys were all that remained of the 150 that attacked 30 Vikings. The man, Eagle One Hand, has one hand but in place of his other one is a sword that had been grafted onto his arm by the dwarves of Svartalheim. Now, if his king would excuse him, Ragnvald said he felt like he needed to sit down and die. <laughs> the king laughed, saying sorry it had been so rough. 
and thanked Roggenwald for the initiative. He could go have a drink. Roggenwald nodded, took a seat at one of the benches, and his head thudded down onto the table. He wasn't exaggerating. He sat down and died. The king was surprised. Wow, he wasn't joking. Though in retrospect, that wasn't really a joke. Still, someone should avenge his death. Asmund stood. It was the least he could do for the king's hospitality. Well, technically sitting around drinking the king's mead and not raiding his kingdom was the least he could do. But he had already done that. So here they were. He would take care of this eagle one hand or die trying. Well, we're friends now, Asmund said a few days later when he returned next to a burly stranger with a sword arm. The king's jaw dropped, but how? Asmund went to avenge his men and he came back with a new best friend. What happened? Asmund was more than happy to say how because it ended with him winning. He walked up to Eagle's ship at port in a recently smoldering village and he said he came for Eagle's head. So, yeah, not too many places to go from there. He drew his sword. Eagle replied that the king must hate Asmund to send him after Eagle. They should band together, marry the king's daughters, and take over the kingdom. The king swallowed hard. Wait, what? But Asmund said no, simply because the king's daughters weren't available at the moment, on account of being kidnapped by monsters. That will throw up a roadblock in your dating life. The king was so relieved that Asmund had so many good reasons not to kill and overthrow him. Asmund returned to the story. After the guys camped out together that night, and their men partied together, they got ready for a fight to the death. They went hard, and at the end of it, when both tore the helmet off the other, Asmund realized that he couldn't best the man with a sword hand with weapons, so he threw down his own weapons and rushed Eagle, getting inside his arms and rendering his sword hand useless. Grappling, Asmund pinned Eagle to the ground and reached for his own sword, but it was just out of grasp. He swore. He had Eagle pinned to the ground. He won. He looked back to Eagle. He said his sword wasn't on hand and it was kind of too much trouble to bite his throat. His actual words. Eagle, on the ground, shrugged. Well, he was going to have to do one of those things. Asmund sneered, froze for a second, and lunged for his sword. In his absence, Eagle didn't move. The story says he held as still as if he was getting a haircut. Wait, you Vikings get haircuts? The king of Russia asked. Both Eagle and Asmund grimaced. Yes, they did. It was actually kind of offensive to them that he was implying that the Vikings were dirty and unkempt. We meticulously comb and groom our beards and hair, to the point that one English writer complained about the women in his region being more attracted to the Norsemen because they, you know, bathed. Oh, wow. Didn't, didn't know that, the Russian king replied. Well, now you do, Asmund said, and got back to the story. Yep, he returned to Eagle, where he found the man hadn't moved, raised his sword, and stuck it in the ground next to Eagle, extending his hand to the man instead. He told Eagle to stand. Eagle was an honorable man. Sure, he raided villages and enslaved people, but he was willing to lay still after he lost a fight. So he was okay in Asmund's book. What's a book? Eagle asked, but Asmund continued. He wanted Eagle to be Asmund's sworn brother. But first, 
they were going to go visit the king. Eagle asked, but wouldn't the king kill him? Esmond laughed. Not if they stood armed and ominous directly in front of him in his throne room. The implication being that they'll just kill him and take over if he doesn't take Eagle on as the master of his defenses. What, Roggenvold's position? The king did a spit take. But the whole reason Asmund went after Eagle was to avenge Roggenvold. Come on. The pair of sworn Viking brothers just waited for the king to grasp, you know, the implication. And finally, the man sighed. <sighs> sure, just like at least swear oaths of loyalty, okay? The two men agreed, and Eagle joined the Russian kingdom. We'll see these two Viking best buddies leave on their next quest, but that will be right after this. Of course, it isn't difficult to see what happens next. The two young men, Asmund and Eagle, learned of an easy way to make a lot of cash. Rescue and marry the kidnapped princesses. It's relative. Not my idea of easy cash, but I'm not a teenage Viking with a sword hand. They didn't even wait until the spring thaw to set out. Though it's not like their competition was doing any better. When people stopped by the Russian kingdom for Christmas, no one had heard any word of the princesses. Through most of the spring, they traveled around to the different kingdoms and islands, looking for anything, but the princesses eluded them. Then, around midsummer, the Swarm Brothers both knew what had happened to the women. They were no longer in this world. In Norse myth, and the sagas, there are nine worlds. Midgard, Asgard, Alfheim, Vanaheim, Svartalheim, Hel, Niflheim, Muspelheim, and Jotunheim. There's a list with a brief description in the show notes. The World Tree... Yggdrasil connects all the disparate worlds, except Valheim, but that's a whole other thing. Travel between the worlds doesn't seem to be particularly difficult. So that's how, come autumn, Asmund and Eagle scraped on the shores of Jotunheim, the land of the Jotnar, the giants. The two Vikings said that they were going inland, but their men should stay with the ship. And if Asmund and Eagle weren't back by next summer, then the men were released from their duties to their captains. The men said, Woo, ten months here on the shores of Jotunheim. So generous. Asmund and Eagle ventured inland, and kept venturing. Autumn turned to winter, winter gave way to spring, and they hunted what food they could. But soon, they were starving. Then, they found the goats. Giant animals weren't anything noteworthy in giant land, Jotunheim. But these were livestock, fat herds. The two Vikings surrounded them and chased them toward a cave when she called out. At the crest of a hill, a silhouette stood, the sun rising behind her. Her voice, bell-like and booming, yelled out, asking who dared to steal the queen's goats. Asmund, the charmer, stood awestruck and said, who are you, O oh beautiful, bedworthy lady? I'm assuming that means she was a very nice person, deserving of a new Helix mattress. 
but that could just be my particular understanding. Who knows what the meaning could be? They let the goats go, as the woman said her name was Skinbeak, daughter of Queen Eaglebeak, the queen and ruler of Jotunheim. They should go visit the queen before they start stealing her things. The two Vikings looked up at the young giant, who they stood in front of at the height of toddlers to an average-sized human, and Asmund approached and placed a ring in her hand. The girl looked at the ring and handed it back, saying that she shouldn't accept this, but Asmund simply walked past her, replying that he wasn't in the habit of taking back his gifts. When they arrived at the cave of the Queen of Jotunheim, they could see that Thor, Thor had done a number on this land. Eaglebeak, the queen, was queen partially because she was the strongest and had the best claim to the throne, but also because she was one of the few Jotnar who was still brave enough to live out in the open. You see, Thor and Odin were scared of the Jotnar. It was partially because they were seen as a scary and dangerous other that lived outside of their realms. Odin wanted to keep them down, and when he wasn't doing it himself, he was glad to see his son Thor traveling through Jotunheim, attacking any giant he met. We've talked about this a lot before, and over my tellings of the Norse myth, I've personally switched from Team Acer to Team Jotnar, but that's a different conversation. All that to say, the Queen of Jotunheim was huddled in a cave and living off gruel, so things were going really great. This was long after the death of Thrymir at Thor's wedding, and Thor and Odin had been relentless ever since. As if a walking metaphor for her people, Eaglebeak, the queen, was surviving. She was missing half the skin on her face, half the hair on her head, she had a broken nose, three teeth missing, two fingers missing, and no skin on her body. The hag, as the story calls her, beckoned the two humans to come sit by her bubbling cauldron that could hold the milk of a hundred cows and a field of wheat. The two men, confident in their abilities and definitely not scared by the somehow still living Jotun queen in front of them, and her giant daughter behind them, took a seat at the fire. They talked about themselves and their quest, and the queen said that gruel would be poor hospitality. She told Skinbeak, the daughter, to go fetch the venison, and the girl did. After it was put on a spit, the queen of Jotunheim said that they had some time. She wanted to know everything about these two young men, and then she would tell her own story. In particular, she wouldn't stop staring at Egil. Asmund started, then paused. Wait, was all this just a framing narrative for the stories of their lives? The queen said it was a Viking story being used as a vehicle for interconnected Viking stories, not just a framing narrative. Don't make this not fun by overthinking it. Who told him the phrase framing narrative anyway? I hear things from the monks before I kill them, Asmund replied then sighed and started in on his story. Four years ago, Asmund, the 12-year-old, was hunting. It wasn't going well. He was already the biggest, strongest man in his father's kingdom at 12. He had been out hunting hares with his father's men and he locked onto one and took off at a gallop, pushing the horse as hard as he could for three miles. The horse was long past the point of starting to flag, and Asmund had been riding the gelding long enough to know when he was about to give way. Because getting this one hare 
was more important than making sure his horse was healthy and safe, Asmund climbed atop the saddle and leapt. The added force from the leap off the horse's back caused the animal to faceplant from a gallop. But it's okay, because Asmund literally hit the ground running. It was another few miles before the hare was the first one to give up. Asmund was within inches of catching it when it leapt from a seaside cliff, plummeting to the sea below. The sweaty Viking 12-year-old skidded to the edge of the cliff and stopped to take a breather. Then he looked back to the forest and the six-plus miles between himself and home. Oh. For three days he was lost in the wood, and really he was still lost when he met Aaron, a tall, handsome man of twelve himself, the story's words, Aaron had a head of yellow silken hair and wore a scarlet cloak. The two kind of actual man-children and Asmund learned that Aaron was the son of King Rodian of Tartary, which is sort of a generic northern Asia in medieval parlance. What brought him all the way to Norway? Asmund. As a buff twelve-year-old, Aaron vowed to never return home until he found another like himself, a burly 12-year-old he could fight. He had heard of Asmund of Norway, and he asked Asmund if he knew of Asmund. Asmund smiled. The two boys tried their strength against one another in every athletic feat they could think of, but each one ended in a tie. The pair then wrestled, but it was impossible to tell which one was stronger. When they broke off, they were exhausted but Aaron was the first one to say it. They shouldn't try their hands at weapons against each other. They would both end up dead. Aaron proposed something else, a sworn brotherhood. As the two burliest 12-year-olds with swords, nothing could stand in their way. Asmund agreed. As part of their pact, they would avenge each other should one of them die by the hand of another. But they would also share in each other's money, now and in the future half of what the other owned would belong to the brother. There was another part to the pact, and I'm not sure who brought this up, but if one of them did die first, and they were both Vikings, so that was very likely, the other should raise a burial mound for the guy who died, place as much money as he thought fit inside, and the survivor should sit in the mound with the dead person for three nights, after which he would be free to go away. Then, each opened up their vein and mixed their blood, which we now know is so dangerous, so please don't do it. And Aaron patched up his wound, which hopefully won't become easily infected because this is the Middle Ages, and the two children went to look at Aaron's ships. You know... I really like what your dad did with the place, Asmund said, as they sailed up to Aaron's home city, somewhere in Asia. The fires really add, like, a nice ambiance. The people cheering really give it a fun, festive feel. People must love living here. No, that's not cheering, Aaron said, gripping his sword. Those are screams. The fire isn't just like a design choice either. The city is on fire. It's being attacked. Asmund nodded, oh, 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 okay, that made more sense. As the old saying we all know goes, when the burly 12-year-old is away, the Ethiopian berserkers will play. In Aaron's absence, Bull Bear and Vison, sons of Jarl Gorm, 
in Ethiopia, attacked King Rodian, killing him and ravaging the land. When Aaron landed, he learned that Bull Bear and Vison were currently spreading havoc around the different parts of the kingdom, and the people flocked to their prince. It wasn't long before the berserkers returned, and battle broke out. The people fought the occupying force in the streets, while the Viking blood brothers took the fight to the conquerors on the boats. The 12-year-old stood just about as tall as the full-grown berserkers, and the two boys charged. Aaron fought it out with Bull Bear as the rest of the warriors fell back to give the whole thing a nice action movie, one-on-one fight aesthetic. Even though Aaron and Asmin were both outnumbered, 15 to 1, Aaron struck out with his sword. And the story says that it didn't bite, but it hit Bull Bear hard enough to send bits of his skull flying. So, overall seems like a solid hit. Bull Bear was still standing, though, and hit back at Aaron. One blow hewing through the kid's shield, any mail he was wearing, and most of his chest. Aaron's old sword skittered across the deck. Blood poured from Aaron as the kid staggered back, tripping and falling to the wood. Bull Bear grinned as he raised his axe. Aaron scrambled back on all fours, and his hand felt something. A broken anchor, with the chain still attached. It was his last, best, and only hope against the encroaching berserker. So he gripped it, closed his eyes, and threw it. And it sunk deep in the berserker's face, lifting him up bodily and carrying him overboard, dragging him to the bottom of the bay as the chain, rattling, chased after him. Meanwhile, Vison hurled two spears at Asmund at the same time, which, you know, expert mode, because while Asmund was trying to catch one of them in the air, the other had so much power that it passed straight through his shield and buried itself in his elbow, sticking to the bone. But Asmund was nothing if not tough. He ignored the pretty severe bodily trauma, caught the first spear mid-flight, and flung it back, catching Vison not on any of his exposed body, remember that he was an Ethiopian berserker, so he didn't wear armor, but the spear hit him in the mouth, going right through the berserker, lifting him up, and sinking into the mast of the ship, leaving him dangling there. Two berserkers having action movie deaths, their men quickly surrendered. Since Asmin and Aaron are the good guys, they executed the surrendering warriors and threw their bodies into the bay. Asmin wrenched the spear from his elbow, and both kids headed back toward the city. When they arrived at port, they were greeted by Aaron's people, who had banded together under the inspiration of their king and expelled the invaders from their lands. Asmin and Aaron looked each other over. Wow, legitimately tough fight. Asmin was bandaging his elbow, while Aaron was marveling over the sweet scar he was going to have down his chest when it healed. Asmin grimaced. Yeah, he should probably have that looked at. That's pretty deep. Asmund was pretty sure he could see sternum. Aaron only laughed as the people crowned him king. It was nice of Asmund to worry, but Aaron was a boy king, the wisest, most forward-thinking type of king. He could look after his own medical care. Thank you very much. And so, three weeks later, Aaron died. The story throws up its hands, wondering what could have led to such a surprising, untimely death for the kid who had his chest ripped open 
and only 9th century medical care to help him. But I feel like we can all kind of connect the dots here. Asmund lamented the death of his intense yet short-lived friendship. But there was a silver lining. They were blood brothers. So Asmund got half of the kingdom. But there was also something else he needed to do. That part about the burial mound? Asmund had to sit with Aaron's body for three nights before he could go. Asmund was happy to do that in honor of his old friend. Since Aaron was back among his people, they decided to give his burial a bit more flair than just a simple mound with some cash that Asmund and Aaron had spoken of. So they decided to really do it up. They put him on a nice seat in full armor, piled his banners and more of his weapons and armor inside, and included his favorite horse, hawk, and hound. All alive and terrified. Fun times. The people wished Asmund well, lowered him in, and sealed off the last bit of light from the outside. Inside the mound, with his quickly decaying friend, a hawk, a horse, and a hound that were eventually going to starve to death, and a whole lot of weapons, 12-year-old Asmund settled in for what would be a smelly, fairly aggressive three days. Then, he heard the groans, the snarls. Asmund struck some flint and lit a torch and saw the horse, hawk, and hound huddled at the farthest wall. They weren't the ones making the noise. He turned to the throne at the far end of the mound where his armored friend sat. Asmund dropped the torch, drawing his weapon. Aaron rose from the throne, snarling at his friend. But he wasn't Aaron anymore. He was the Norse version of the vengeful, walking dead. He was a Draugr, and he was coming for Asmund. good. Thanks. Asmund forced a smile as he refused the polite offer of raw hawk and dog. <sighs> really, bud. Thank you, but I had a full meal before I came in here. Just stuffed, Asmund said as his zombified Draugr friend pushed a headless bird of prey toward his face. Asmund could see that the zombie Aaron wasn't going to let up, so he plucked some sort of tiny organ from the feathery burrito that was his former buddy's favorite hawk, ate it in one gulp, and rubbed his stomach. Mmm, so good. Thanks for that, Asmund said. Draugr Aaron ignored him and kept eating the bird and dog, whose heads he had just torn off. The day passed quickly. Aaron slumbered, but when night came around again, Asmund could hear Draugr Aaron lumbering around in the darkness. A bit of quiet, and then the terrified neigh of a horse that had been trapped in there with them. There was a struggle, some kicks thudding the stones and dirt, but the sounds of the fight gave way to a slow, rhythmic munching. Asmund decided that he didn't need to light the torch that night. The following night, three days without food or water was starting to get to this epic Viking, who found that he barely had the energy to rise. Didn't matter, though. He only had a few hours left on his watch. He reclined in his chair and fell asleep. When he awoke, his zombie best bud was now not his only problem. 
because there was a burning pain on either side of his head and a trickling of something down his neck. He reached up to his ears and felt the side of his head. Only the side of his head. Aaron had ripped his ears off. Jerk. At that moment, Asmund decided that his watch had ended. He didn't sign up for this. He took his sword, and while Aaron was enjoying his appetizers, yes, that happened, let's just get past it, Asmund sliced his head off. Having heard the stories of the Draugr from countless Viking warriors, Asmund knew that he couldn't just leave the guy there. Not if he didn't want to be haunted forever. Not with, like, guilt or something either. But the visage of a decaying Aaron hassling him every time he closed his eyes. So Asmund built a fire and burnt his friend to ashes. Then he tugged twice on the rope, dangling down into the center of the mound, his signal to the waiting watchman. He was pulled from the mound and took all of Aaron's valuables for good measure. Surprisingly, the people of this kingdom were unwilling to honor their late preteen prince's word to his 12-year-old wrestling road buddy to give him instant and complete authority over half of the kingdom. Only the people who had directly served Asmund as his own warriors had any level of loyalty to him. But they refused to fight their own people, so Asmund didn't have a claim. Then, some more berserkers showed up. I'm not sure what it was about this kingdom that made it so appealing to conquerors, but in less than two months since their prince had repelled the previous berserkers and then died, the sea was once again choking with ships. Oh, need a hero? Maybe one who has some experience killing berserkers? Asmund said, sitting back in the longhouse. The people pleaded, saying that they would give him anything, please. Asmund shook his head. He wasn't a greedy 12-year-old. He only wanted what was owed to him, half of the kingdom. The people and the nobles agreed, and Asmund stood, unsheathing his sword. Then they had nothing to worry about. This would be over quickly. A few hours later, Asmund was tied to a windlass, awaiting execution by his new berserker overlords, after being soundly and unambiguously defeated. This was not what he meant when he said the battle would be over quickly. They did beat Asmund pretty quickly, and then planned to sacrifice him to Odin the next morning. You know the phrase, don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today? Well, it applies to sacrificing your enemies to Odin, too, because Asmund, seeing that a bolt on the windlass was given a slight rough edge when it was hammered in, rubbed his bindings against it, severing them and freeing his hands. After his hands were loose, he used them to break the iron shackles at his feet and escaped into the forest. Free from the whole situation, he decided that, you know what, I should jump right back into it and play a bit of a joke. Vikings have a different sense of humor than you or I, because the joke was him going to the tent of the berserkers, pulling it down on them, and then slicing them to pieces in the chaos, i.e. not a joke and just more violence. The deaths of the berserker leaders coincided with yet another arrival in the kingdom. Herod, the brother of the late king, Rodian, came to liberate his homeland. He quickly routed the leaderless berserkers and the land was freed. Asmund approached Herod, who sat on his family's throne, and again pressed for his claim 
for half of Aaron's inheritance. The king graciously agreed to honor his late nephew's request, and hey, would Asmund like some ships to get as far away from here as possible, go raiding, and eh, maybe never come back? From then on, Asmund was known as Asmund Berserk's killer, and he had been raiding for the last four years. You know, I never noticed you don't have ears, Eagle said. Asmund shrugged. He wore his hair long. He brushed his hair back to reveal his pinnaless head. Eagle looked it over. Dude, why? You got your ears ripped off by a zombie. We're Vikings. That is awesome. Eaglebeak, their host, yelled out to her daughter, asking the girl if the gruel was ready yet. She shook her head. Nope, not yet. So Eaglebeak pointed to Eagle. He was next up. What was his story? And that's where we're going to pick it up next week, with Eagle and then Eaglebeak's story. And it will have, of course, more giants, a ripoff of the Odyssey, Thor messing with giant land some more, and Odin being Odin. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of pickle lip balm, which is exactly what it sounds like, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't leave your lips vinegar fresh. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Andandara from 16th century Spain or Africa. So, I used to think cats were evil. And then we got one and now we have three and I'm a bona fide cat dad. That being said, today's cats are pure evil. First off, they're rapists. It has the size and look of a normal cat, but the males in the line seek out a human woman to impregnate. Because, like the aliens in X-Files, they're seeking to make human hybrids. With the Anandara, it's a kitty-human hybrid. But like the X-Files, it doesn't make much sense and will probably go nowhere. If you've seen the movie Cats, then you know what their endgame looks like. And I don't think anyone wants to live in that nightmare world. Except for Tomato, one of our cats, who was captivated by that movie. In addition, they have deadly claws and teeth, and the ability to kill or curse with a stare. The mere presence of one of these cats can cause crop failure, disease, or ill fortune. That's the Spanish one. The African one comes from the Azande people in the Congo. This one is a larger wildcat, sporting a bright body and gleaming eyes. It will still target women, but not with the same agenda as the Spanish one. And the women won't give birth to some sort of horrifying humanoid hybrid, but a normal baby and a kitten. Like the Spanish one, it has the evil eye and can curse crops and stuff. But this one can also curse you with its cry from the bush. The stories don't give any way to get rid of the Enendara, but I can imagine the way you'd normally get a cat to leave would still work. So like a spray bottle with water or, you know, my affection. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Today's episode was brought to you for free, thanks to Acorn TV. This is a great time to try it out and discover shows you've never seen, like Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears. It's witty and refreshing, with globetrotting adventure, wartime secrets, and an ancient tomb with a terrible curse. From all of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show, because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. 
Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N TV code LEGENDS to get your first 30 days for free. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.